Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 94, From British Legend to English King. In this episode, we're going to complete our look at Leamon's early Middle English text called Brute. We'll examine the second half of the poem, which is the story of King Arthur, and it's the first version of the Arthurian legend composed in the English language. As we go through the poem, we'll take a closer look at the language used by Leamon, and we'll see how it reflects certain changes that were taking place in the early 1200s. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com, and you can sign up to support the podcast at patreon.com slash historyofenglish. And as always, you can reach me by email at kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com. One other quick note before we begin. Many of you may be familiar with Zach Twomley's podcast called When Diplomacy Fails. Well, Zach is celebrating the fifth anniversary of the podcast, and he's put together a remarkable series of episodes to celebrate the achievement. He's releasing at least two new episodes each day for five weeks. And one of the first episodes in the series is a discussion that he and I had a few weeks ago about podcasting and about certain English terms associated with diplomacy. The first part of that interview has been posted for everyone to listen to at the When Diplomacy Fails podcast. That part focuses on podcasting and some behind-the-scenes stuff associated with this particular podcast. So check that out if you're interested, and check out Zach's podcast if you haven't listened before. So with that, let's turn to this episode. And this time, we're going to complete our look at Leamon's Brute. As we saw last time, this particular text was probably composed in the early 1200s, perhaps around the year 1205 or 1206, but nobody really knows for sure. The text is an English translation of an earlier French text called Roman de Brut, which itself was a translation of a Latin text composed by Geoffrey of Monmouth called The History of the Kings of Britain. I also noted last time that Leamon's manuscript survives in two copies. The older version contains Leamon's original text, but a few decades later another scribe copied the text and made certain changes in the process. These changes tend to show certain developments in the language in the early 1200s. So this manuscript is important to our story for two reasons. It shows how the English language was changing in early Middle English, and it also provides us with the first version of the King Arthur legend in English. So let's pick up the text where we left off last time. We left the story with Britain under attack by barbarian tribes and the arrival of Constantine from Brittany. In the story, Constantine is accompanied by 2,000 knights. Together, they march into London and call upon brave men throughout the country to join their cause. The men of Britain respond and travel to join Constantine's army. Laman writes, They came out of the mountain, many thousand men. The cumen ut of munten, moni thusen mona. Now, I noted last time that Leamon was the first known English writer to use the word mountain, but the second scribe preferred to use other words. In earlier passages, he replaced the word mountain with words like country and hills, and here he replaced mountain with the word wilderness. He says that many thousand people came out of the wilderness, which is an early form of the word wilderness. 
and wilderness was a brand new word in the English language at this point. The word is actually based on an old English phrase, wild deer, literally wild deer. As we know, deer was an old English term, and it had a much broader meaning back then than it has today. It referred to any animal that lived in the forest. So, wild deer, or wild deer, meant wild animal. And here we have wilderness, which is the place where wild deer live. So, wilderness is literally wild deerness. And the second scribe tells us that many thousands of men came from the wilderness to join Constantine's forces. Now, with his hastily assembled army, Constantine is able to defeat the various peoples who had invaded the island. And following the victory, a great meeting is held, and Constantine is made the king of Britain. Twelve years pass under Constantine's leadership, but one of his knights turns out to be a traitor, and the knight murders Constantine by stabbing him in the heart with a knife. With Constantine's death, a new king has to be chosen. Now, Constantine has three living children, but none of them are a good candidate. The eldest child is named Constance, and he was placed in a monastery as a small child to be raised as a monk. So he's never been trained for kingship. The two youngest children are named Aurely and Uther, and they are barely more than infants. So all the landed nobility come to London to decide what to do. Initially, they choose one of the younger children, but a prominent earl named Vortiger steps forward and disagrees with the choice. He convinces the nobles to delay their final decision for a few days. He then rides to the monastery where the eldest child, Constance, is living as a monk. Now, Constance hates being a monk, but he's bound to the monastery. So Vortiger offers him a deal. He will help to free Constance from the monastery and support him as king if Constance will agree to let Vortiger be the real power behind the throne. Constance eagerly agrees to the deal. In order to free Constance from the monastery, Vortiger devises a plan. He decides that Constance should switch clothes with one of Vortiger's knights, so he grabs the knight's cape and places it on Constance. That enables Constance to sneak out of the monastery disguised as Vortiger's knight. Now, in this particular passage, Laomon uses the word cape, a Latin word that had been introduced during the Anglo-Saxon period. But the later scribe changed that word from cape to cloak, and that's the first known use of the word cloak in an English document. Cloak is a French word, and believe it or not, it's actually cognate with the word clock. Both words come from the Latin word cloca, which meant bell. Since many early clocks had bells, the word cloca came to be associated with timekeeping devices and that produced the word clock. And since a long, loose-fitting cape was sometimes shaped like a bell, it was also called a cloca, and that produced the word cloak, which passed into English around this point in the early 1200s. So, disguised as a knight, Constance escapes from the monastery. Vortiger and his knights soon follow, and they all head to London. A few days later, the nobles have a second meeting to discuss the succession, and Vortiger presents Constance to the gathered nobles and convinces them that he is the best choice since he's the eldest son, even though he was raised in a monastery, and even though he has little knowledge of government affairs. 
The nobles agree, and Constance becomes king. But Vortiger is the real power behind the throne. Leoman writes, Vortiger was very strong, the highest man in Britain. Vortiger was sweet as strong, the highest man of Brutland. Time passes, and Vortiger hatches a plan to usurp the throne. He brings in foreign knights who owe their primary loyalty to him. The knights end up killing the young king Constance, but Vortiger plays naive and accuses the knights of treachery. He then has the foreign knights executed, and he claims the throne for himself. Vortiger becomes the new king, but several of the wise men of Britain see behind Vortiger's plot, and they usher Constance's younger brothers out of Britain to spare them from Vortiger's wrath. They are sent to Brittany to be raised with their relatives there. With Vortiger now in charge, he forms an alliance with the Saxons and even marries a Saxon princess. The Saxons are also given land in Britain. Now all of this enrages the native Britons. Eventually the Saxons turn on Vortiger and force him into exile in Wales. Vortiger makes his way to the Welsh lands, and there he builds a refuge and lives in fear, awaiting the arrival of the Saxon forces. He builds a castle, and he tries to surround it with a great wall for protection. Each day his workers construct part of the wall, but each night it falls down. This happens over and over. So Vortiger calls upon sages and prophets to advise him what to do. One of them advises Vortiger that if he can find a boy who has no father, the boy's blood can be mixed with the lime and laid in the wall, and the wall will then stand forever. So Vortiger's knights search the countryside for such a boy, but none can be found. Two of the knights engaging in the search finally decide to take a rest and they sit down to watch several children playing. Leoman says that they were engaged in Childrenplech, or child's play. This is the first use of the phrase child's play in an English document. Here the phrase is used literally to mean children at play. But a couple of centuries later, Geoffrey Chaucer will use the same phrase figuratively to mean an easy task. And that'll be the first known use of the phrase in that figurative sense, in the sense that we often use it today. But here we have the first literal use of that phrase, child's play. While the young boys are playing, one child strikes the other. And the child who received the blow yells at the boy who hit him. He says, Merlin, why did you hit me? Your mother is a whore. She doesn't even know who your father is. You embarrass us and make us all ashamed. Now the knights, sitting nearby, overhear this. So they approach the young boy who started the fight, and they ask him to take them to his mother. The boy does as they ask, and the knights then take the boy and his mother back to Vortiger's castle. There, Vortiger questions the mother about the boy's father. She replies that she does not know the boy's father. She tells how she was visited in her sleep by a vision in the form of a beautiful young knight. She says that she later discovered that she was pregnant with the young boy, who she named Merlin. Vortiger is informed by one of his advisors that there's a race of supernatural beings called incubi that appear to men and women while sleeping, and that's what the woman is describing. This is actually the first use of the word incubi, or incubus, in the English language. At this point, Merlin speaks up, and he asks why he's been brought to Vortiger's castle. 
Fortiger explains what the sages have told him, that the blood of a fatherless child will secure the stones in the castle wall. So having been told why he was being detained, young Merlin angrily responds that Vortiger's sages are lying. He says his blood is useless. He then confronts the sages, and he asks them if they know why the walls won't stand. But the sages are silent. Merlin then tells Vortiger that if his men dig seven feet under the wall, they will find a stone. And if they remove the stone, they will find a pond. And if the water is drained, they will find two dragons. At midnight each night, the dragons fight each other. And that is what causes the wall to fall down. Vortiger directs his men to dig beneath the wall to see what they find. They dig, and they find a stone. And beneath the stone, they find a pond. And when they drain the pond, they find two dragons fighting, just as Merlin had said. Realizing that Merlin is a true wizard, Vortiger then beheads all of his other sages. Vortiger then meets with Merlin in private, and he asks Merlin to tell him what is to come in the future. But Merlin warns him that it's a sorrowful story. Vortiger will be challenged by Constantine's two younger sons, who have been in exile in Brittany. Merlin says that the two brothers are on their way to Britain as he speaks. They will arrive the next day, and they will defeat Vortiger. The two brothers will have the kingdom in succession. And Uther, the younger brother, will give birth to a child who will destroy all of the traitors in Britain, including those who have supported Vortiger. That was Merlin's prophecy. Now, one quick comment about this passage before we proceed. Merlin says of Constantine's two sons, Literally, now be of Britain, men arrived. But it means that the two brothers have now arrived in Britain. And this is the first known use of the word arrive in the English language. Merlin then says, Literally, they come tomorrow full truly in this land. So which is it? Have they now arrived, or are they coming tomorrow? Well, this is only confusing in modern English, because the word arrive had a slightly different meaning at the time. When Laman says that the two brothers have arrived, he's saying that they've reached the British shore by boat today, and they will proceed across land tomorrow. And that makes more sense if we look a little closer at that word, arrive. If you focus on the last part, R-I-V-E, you might notice a similarity to the word river. Both words came in from French in the 1200s, and both words are derived from the same Latin root, meaning a river bank or shore. A river is a current of water that flows between the banks, and to arrive is literally to cross a body of water and reach the bank or shore on the other side. So during this period, if someone arrived, they literally docked their boat on the shore, having crossed a river or other body of water. Of course, the word has acquired a much broader meaning over time. So, back to the story. Constantine's two younger sons have indeed arrived in Britain, and the native Britons come by the thousands to join their cause. The British nobles have a great meeting and choose the elder brother hourly as their king. The newly selected king tracks down Vortiger to a castle where he's taken refuge, and the besiegers set fire to the castle. 
the castle burns to the ground, killing all inside, including Vortiger. Leoman writes, Thus ended there with much harm, Vortiger. Thus ended there mid mutulo arm, Vortiger. The Britons then defeat the Saxon army and resecure the country. There are still occasional invaders and outside threats, which Leoman refers to as Theanden, the original Old English version of the word fiends. But the later scribe changed that word to onfreans, literally unfriends. Now, even though the scribe uses the term as a noun and not a verb, this is the first recorded instance of the word unfriend. So if you unfriend someone on social media, you're actually using a word that can be traced back to Leoman's manuscript. The youngest brother, Uther, is away fighting against these invaders in a different part of the island when a plot is hatched by the king's enemies to kill him. The king is sick, and an assassin pretends to be a doctor and poisons him. Meanwhile, Uther is still at war with the invaders in the countryside. Uther lies awake at night and looks to the sky as the moon begins to shine as bright as sunlight. Now the words sun and light are both Old English words, but this is the oldest recorded instance of the compound word sunlight. Uther then sees a comet cross the sky. Light gleams from the comet, and the image of a dragon appears at the end of one of the gleams. Uther then summons Merlin and asks what omen the comet represents. Merlin says that much sorrow has come to this land. He says that the comet is a sign that Uther's brother, the king, has been murdered. Uther will soon become the new king, and the various gleams of light represent a son who will be born to Uther, and that son will conquer many nations. The next morning, Uther's forces defeat the invaders, and he returns to Winchester, where he learns that his brother has indeed been murdered, and he has been chosen as the new king of Britain. Uther recalls the comet and the image of the dragon in the sky, so he decides to use a dragon on his standard, and his people begin to call him Uther Pendragon. We are told that Uther is a good king, but he hears nothing from Merlin. Uther soon defeats another Saxon army, and that seemingly brings an end to the forces that have threatened the kingdom. A great celebration is held in London, and there, during the feast, Uther meets Ugern, rendered in later versions of the story as Egrain. She's the wife of the Earl of Cornwall. During the feast, they openly flirt with each other, but the Earl sees what's happening, and he becomes angry and leaves the feast. Uther chases after the Earl and apologizes for his behavior, but the Earl refuses the apology and leaves anyway, bearing a heavy grudge against Uther. Uther is also enraged that the Earl refused his apology. The Earl returns to Cornwall and gathers his forces for a showdown against Uther. Uther leads his army to Cornwall to engage the Earl. He's not only offended by the Earl's reaction, but he's also now in love with Egrain, so he's blinded by jealousy. Uther lays siege to the Earl's castles, but the Earl relies upon his defenses and refuses to engage Uther. Now Uther is desperate to defeat the Earl and win the Earl's wife. One of Uther's knights informs him that he had been approached by a hermit the day before, and the hermit told him that he knew where Merlin slept each night. Uther directs the knight to locate Merlin and bring the wizard to him as soon as possible. 
By the way, this passage is the first known use of the French word hermit in an English document. Now, the knight locates the hermit, and the hermit leads him to Merlin. But being a wizard, Merlin already knows why the knight has come looking for him. He knows of Uther's love of Egrain. But he also says that Uther will never have her because there is no truer woman in the world. However, he says that a child will be born to Uther and Egrain, and that child will become a great ruler, and that the prophecy must come to pass. So Merlin offers to help make the prophecy come true. Merlin travels to meet with King Uther, and he tells Uther that he can perform magic that will enable Uther to take on the appearance of the Earl. In his disguise, he can pass through the Earl's guards and into Egrain's chambers. Merlin then works his magic, and he accompanies Uther and Uther's knight. They are all disguised, thanks to Merlin's sorcery. Uther then enters Egrain's bedchamber, and the two spend the night together. Of course, Egrain thinks she is with her husband, but she's really with Uther. That night, a child is conceived. Laomon says of Uther, He begat her a wonderful man, keenest of all kings, that ever came upon men, and he was on earth named Arthur. Hestrenida hieron anas seokuthumo, kingen arrakenest, de evrokom tumonen, and he was on erda, Arthur hihaten. While this is happening, Uther's forces engage the actual earl at a nearby castle. The earl is killed in the conflict, and his forces are defeated. Even though rumors spread that the earl has been killed, Uther is still disguised as the earl, so he has to act quickly. While still disguised, Uther addresses the gathered knights and informs them that he is still alive, and he will muster his forces to defeat Uther. He then tells the gathered men, Habest Allah go to nicht. Have ye all a good night. Now, believe it or not, this is the first recorded instance of the phrase, good night. Both good and night are Old English words, but the phrase, good night, is not attested in any Old English document. It appears for the first time here. So, if you're wondering who the first person was to utter the phrase, good night, now you know. It was Uther Pendragon, while disguised as the Earl of Cornwall, immediately after conceiving Arthur. Now Uther, still in disguise, returns to his camp, and he then resumes his actual appearance. With the Earl's defeat and death, Uther takes Egrain as his queen, even though she's already pregnant with his child. And Arthur is born a few months later. Several years pass, and the Saxon invaders return from across the Channel. Uther is able to defeat the forces, so the Saxons look for a way to kill Uther. Several Saxon spies infiltrate Uther's camp, and they poison a well that Uther drinks from every day. A short time later, Uther drinks water from the well, and he dies. Now, Laomon tells us that the dead king is then buried beside his brother near Stonehenge. He writes, They buried him there by his brother, side by side. There they both lie. Hina der Birden be loven his brother, Sida by Sida, Baena Hail der Ligeth. By the way, this is the first recorded use of the phrase side by side in an English document. Now, with Uther's death, 
the British nobles reach out to Uther's son, Arthur, who is living in Brittany. Arthur is 15 years old, and he is made the new king of Britain. Laomon writes, Then Arthur was king. Hearken now a wonderful thing. Thatha Arthur was king, herrin a new sailage thing. Now you'll notice that there is no stone with a sword in it. Arthur didn't have to remove Excalibur from a stone in this version of the story. That feature was added by other writers. Now we're told that Arthur was a great king, and his people loved him. He always sought to do the right thing, and he hated to do wrong. Soon after becoming king, the Saxons and the Picts join forces and invade Arthur's kingdom. Arthur eventually defeats them. He besieges the castle where the Saxon leader is holed up. On the verge of starvation, the Saxon leader surrenders and offers to return to Germany. Arthur accepts the surrender, and the Saxons are allowed to set sail back home. But they only sail part of the way, and they soon return to the coast on a different part of the island. And once again, they ravaged the people and the land. Laomon says that they stabbed and murdered and slew men with kleben, which is an early form of the word clubs. Club is a Norse word, apparently picked up from the Vikings or their descendants. And this is the first known use of that word club in an English document. The Saxons actually claim a large portion of southwestern Britain before Arthur is made aware that they violated their promise to return home. Arthur then marches on the Saxons. This time, he intends to destroy them once and for all. He will not agree to a peace. As he approaches the Saxons, Arthur puts on his armor. Laomon writes, Caliburn his sword, he hung by his side. Caliburn his sword, he swinda be his sida. Note that Arthur's sword is called Caliburn, not Excalibur. Caliburn is the original name of Arthur's sword. It's based on the Latin name Caliburnus, which Geoffrey of Monmouth had picked up from a Welsh source. Over the next couple of centuries, as portions of this story were retold and expanded, the name of the sword evolved from Caliburn to Excalibur. Now, Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote that the sword was forged on the Isle of Avalon, but Laomon adds a new feature. He says that the sword was forged with magical arts. So, Caliburn, or Excalibur, is a magical sword. Arthur then leads his troops into battle against the Saxons, and his men slaughter 2,000 Saxons without losing a single man. This time, many of the Saxon leaders are killed, several at the hands of Arthur himself. Arthur then decides to deal with certain threats in Scotland. He calls upon his kinsmen, the rulers of Brittany and Cornwall. Together, the three leaders combine their forces, and they invade Scotland. They subdue the Scots, but Arthur ultimately shows mercy on the people because they're Christian like himself, and not pagans like the Saxons. So they accept Arthur as their lord. Arthur then travels to Cornwall. Laomon says, He found there a maiden extremely fair. He fjorda there a maiden unimate fair. Laomon then writes the following passage. She was of noble race of Romanish men, was in no land any maid so fair, of speech and of deeds and of manners most good. She was named 
Guinevere, fairest of women. Arthur took her to wife and loved her very much. This maiden he then wed and took her to his bed. Heowes of Hecuna, of Roman Shimonen, Nessin Nanalonda maiden non Swahenda, of Specia and of Deira, and of Tuchla Sweetagoda, Heo was he hata wenhavar, weef mana hedest, Author heo nom to weefa, and luvida heo wunder sweetha, this maiden higonweda, and nom heo to his beda. Now, after marrying Guinevere, Arthur defeats the Irish and accepts their submission. The kings of Iceland and the Orkneys also submit to Arthur, and they accept him as their overlord. Gothland also submits. This is presumably Gothic territory in continental Europe. We're then told that there was a great joy in Britain. Songs and merriment filled the air. Poets or shopes sang of Arthur the king. Shopes versungen of Arthur than kingen. Here was fiddling and song. Here was harping among. Here was fiddlinga and song. Here was harpinga imong. So minstrels were playing fiddles and harps. Now there's something very interesting about that passage. It shows a brand new development in the language, specifically in words like fiddlinga or fiddling and harpinga or harping. It has to do with that ending, ing. That ending is used to form what English teachers call a present participle. In modern English, we can show present tense with a simple present tense verb, like I sing. But if we want to show continuous action, we can convert that verb into a present participle. We basically just take the verb and add ing to the end. And when we do that, we can also use that word as an adjective or a noun. So this little ending allows us to use that verb in a lot of different ways. So we have the verb sing. The simple present tense is sing or sings. But if we add ing to the end, we get the present participle singing. And that allows us to show continuous action, as in I am singing. But we can also use that word as an adjective. We can have a singing minstrel. We can also use the word as a noun, as in singing is fun. And when we use it as a noun, it's technically called a gerund. Anyway, you're probably saying, so what? Why the grammar lesson? Well, it's because that modern ending, ing, was a brand new development in the language when Lehman composed this manuscript. Now, Old English also had participles, and it could also use verbs as adjectives and nouns in much the same way, but the ending was different. In Old English, the ending was, appropriately enough, end, E-N-D-E. So the present participle of sing in Old English would have been singend, not singing. But around this point in the West Midlands of England, the D at the end started to be replaced with a G. And it went from singend to singing. Remember that Layman was from the West Midlands, so his manuscript was one of the first to show this change. The old ending didn't disappear, though. It continued to be used alongside the newer ending, and Layman used both forms in the manuscript. Over the next couple of centuries, the ing suffix spread throughout the Midlands and the south of England. 
It was rarely used in the North, though. By the time of Geoffrey Chaucer in the late 1300s, both forms were still being used in the East Midlands, including London. Chaucer tended to use the ing suffix, but some of his contemporaries preferred the older ending. Of course, the ing ending became the standard ending by the time of early modern English, and it remains the standard form today. But that g at the end was already variable by the time of early modern English. Many people were dropping that g even during the time of Shakespeare, and it still varies today. Even though it's not considered standard, many speakers still drop the g at the end. So instead of singing and dancing, some people prefer singing and dancing. Now you may be wondering where that ing ending came from. After all, these types of grammatical changes don't tend to appear out of thin air. Well, it's probably derived from an ending that was used when a verb was used as a noun in Old English. In other words, when the verb was a gerund. Today, we use the same form with the ing ending for the verb and the noun. We have the verb form "I am singing" and the noun form "singing is fun." But in Old English, the two forms were different. The verb form ended in "ende," and the noun form ended in "ung." So it would have been "I am singenda," but "singung" is fun. And it appears that these forms blended together in the West Midlands, and the "ung" ending became "ing." One other quick note: in Old English. That noun form with the ung ending usually followed a preposition like on, so it was usually used as the object of a prepositional phrase. Rather than saying singung is fun, it would have been more common to say something like on singung is fun. And in Middle English, as this noun form started to merge with the verb form, the on at the front. Was shortened to a or a, and it went from on singung to a singing, and that form still exists in some dialects today. You might hear someone say that he was a singing or they were a dancing. It's usually associated with rural dialects, and it may seem like a corrupt form of English, but it's actually derived from the way that gerunds worked in Old English. And again, it's also the likely source of the ing ending that we still use on verbs today. Anyway, the important point is that the ing verb ending started to appear in English around this time in the West Midlands, and Layman's Brut is one of the first English documents to use it. So, returning to our story, there was much fiddling and playing of the harp in Arthur's kingdom. Layman then writes, "All that Arthur saw." All it submitted to him, rich men and poor, as the hail that falleth. All that Arthur saw, all hit him to back, rich men and poor, swat the hail fallest. In this passage, Layman uses the phrase "rich men and poor," and this is one of the first recorded instances of the word "poor" in the English language. It comes from the French word "pauvre." By the way, thanks to the p to f sound shift associated with Grimm's law, English has the native word "few" from the same root. So "few" and "poor" are actually cognate. Also, in modern English, it's very common to use the words "rich" and "poor" together 
to refer to both elements of society. Rich is a native Old English word that we've seen before, and poor comes from Old French. So in the phrase rich and poor, we see a classic blending of English and French. But interestingly, the word rich, referring to the upper classes, is from Old English. And the word poor, referring to the lower classes, comes from French. Usually, it works the other way around. Words associated with the aristocracy tend to come from French, and words associated with the peasants tend to come from Old English. So both the rich and the poor love Arthur, and a state of peace exists throughout Britain for the next 12 years. Now up to this point, Laoman has followed the general narrative outlined by Geoffrey of Monmouth in Latin and Was in French, but at this point he includes a completely new section, and it relates to the famous round table. Geoffrey of Monmouth didn't mention anything about a round table, but Was had included a very brief passage at this point in his French translation where he said that Arthur had directed the construction of a round table so that all his knights could sit around it, and none would hold a position higher or more prominent than the others. Laoman takes this brief reference to a round table, and he composes an extended passage about how the table came to be created. In the passage, men from all of Arthur's kingdoms come to London at Christmas time to celebrate the holiday, and a feast is held where everyone is present. All the knights are proud, and each one thinks he's better than the others. Laoman writes, Each had in heart proud thoughts, and thought that he was better than his companion. Elch habita en hert leches hech, and let that he were better than his era. Soon the knights start to argue, and a fight breaks out. Loaves of bread and bowls of wine are thrown around. The argument escalates into a fist fight, and then weapons are drawn, and the fight turns into a riot. Arthur needs one hundred knights to quell the riot. When the fight is finally brought to an end, Arthur punishes the knight who started the riot by having him thrown into a bog, and he has the knight's nearest kinsman beheaded. A short time later, Arthur travels to Cornwall and meets a craftsman. The man says to Arthur, I know of tree works, many wonderful crafts. Each of treawerkes wunderfeile craftis. Tree works is an old term for carpentry. And carpentry came in from French about a century after this particular manuscript. Now the carpenter says that he has heard about the fight involving the king's knights and he offers to build a round table so that none is above the other. The man says, I will work a board exceedingly fair, that thereat may sit sixteen hundred and more, all turn about, so that none be without, without and within, man against man. Ak ich thewila wirka borda sweeta hinda, that they mechen set into sixteen hundred emma, all Tirnabuta, that non nebean withuta, withuten and withina, multogenus mona. Four weeks later, the board or table is finished. From that point on, Arthur's knights set around the table, and no more fights occur. Laoman then includes another passage which is new to the legend, and very important to the idea that Arthur was the once and future king of Britain. He says that Arthur's rise fulfilled the prophecy foretold by Merlin. 
But he adds that Merlin made another prophecy. He says that no Briton will believe and accept the death of Arthur unless it's Judgment Day, the last of all mankind, because he will fare into Avalon, into the island, to Arganta the Fair, for she will heal his wounds, and when he is whole, he will return to them. That he were Wolde into Avaluna, into Dan Etland, to Arganta their Henda, for hail shoulder mid Hallowea, hailing his wounden, and then he were all hall, he wolde sonacum heum. So after these new sections are added by Laoman, he returns to the basic narrative of Geoffrey and Wass. Arthur's knights propose that they go to France and force the submission of the French. Arthur agrees, but he says that they have to take Norway first. The Norwegian king has died, and he has no sons or daughters. The later scribe changed that line to read, And heir he haveth none, and heir haveth he none. This is the first recorded use of the French word heir, H-E-I-R, in an English document. Since the Norwegian king has no children, Arthur says that the king's nephew, who is also a relative of Arthur, should be made the new king. So Arthur travels to Norway to make sure that the nephew succeeds to the throne. After this is accomplished, Arthur heads home, but he stops in Denmark on his way back. The Danish king is so afraid of Arthur that he submits on the spot. So Arthur is now the overlord of Norway and Denmark. Arthur then sets his sights on France. He gathers knights and soldiers from throughout his massive realm, and he crosses the channel to Flanders where he begins his conquest. Over the next nine years, he completes the conquest of France. Arthur then arranges a great coronation ceremony at Caelian in Wales. Laoman says that no city was as fair during the time of Arthur, with the possible exception of Rome. There were broad meadows and abundant fish, fowl, and wild deer. And he says that the city has never been as great as it was during the days of Arthur. He writes, Some books say certainly that the burr was bewitched. Summa bocus sugeth tuiwisa that the berg was bewitched. Now this is the first time that the word bewitched appears in the English language. It's based on the Old English word witch, but the verb bewitch is not found in any document before this point. Later in the story, Laoman suggests why the town has been bewitched, but more on that later. Now during this period of Arthur's reign, Kalian has many scholars. They use special skills to examine the sky. Laoman says that the craft is called astronomy. The craft is ihata astronomy. This is the first time the word astronomy appears in an English document. It's actually a Greek word, and it passed through Latin and French into English. The appearance of this word also shows the increasing influence of Greco-Roman scholarship in Britain at the time. And I'll cover that topic in more detail in an upcoming episode. A short time after Arthur's grand coronation, twelve soldiers arrive at Arthur's court from Rome. They address Arthur and inform him that they have been sent by the Roman emperor. Remember that this story is set at the end of the classical Roman period. Now the messengers tell Arthur that the Roman emperor is the most powerful ruler in Europe, and he demands that Arthur recognize him as Arthur's lord. If Arthur refuses to submit to Rome, the emperor will send forces to destroy Arthur and his kingdom. 
Now, Arthur's knights are outraged by the demand. Arthur addresses them, and he tells them that Rome had conquered Britain by force several centuries earlier, and they had killed many Britons in the process. So as the ruler of Britain, he has every right to return the favor, and he intends to invade and conquer Rome itself. This will be Arthur's greatest test, and the battle between Arthur's realm and Rome is the culmination of the story. Several of Arthur's nobles step forward to offer their support for the Roman campaign. One of them is the leader of the Scots, and he steps forward to address Arthur and the gathered knights. Laoman says that he stood upon a bank, stood upon on a banca. Now the word bank here means a bench, and in fact the later scribe didn't like Laoman's use of the word bank here, so he changed it to the Old English word bench. In fact, Bank and bench are cognate. The reason I mention this is because this is one of the first known uses of the word bank in the English language. The word bank actually came into English from Old Norse. Bank is the Norse word, and bench is the related Old English word. They have a common Germanic root. Now, the Norse word bank was first used by Orm in the Ormulum. He used it in the sense of a mound or slope, like a river bank. And here, Laoman uses it as a synonym for bench. And that's notable because that same Germanic word bank also passed into the Romance languages. And in Italy, money changers exchanged money at a table or bench that was called a bank, from this same sense of the word as a bench. And, of course, that gave rise to the other sense of the word bank as a financial institution. So I just wanted to make the note that the sense of the word bank as a bench was well established in England long before the later connection between banks, benches, and financial institutions. So Arthur decides to take on the Roman emperor, and he sends a message to Rome that he will not pay tribute to the emperor or recognize the emperor as his overlord. The Romans are stunned by Arthur's defiance, and Laoman says that the senators in the Roman Senate advised and counseled the emperor how to respond. This is the first recorded use of the words senate and senator in the English language. Of course, these are references to the Roman institutions, but they now became part of English as well. The senate advises the emperor to gather a great army to take on Arthur. They suggest that he obtain troops from the four corners of his massive empire. Meanwhile, Arthur assembles his forces and prepares to cross the channel to France. He leaves his nephew Modred in charge of Britain. Modred is the child of Arthur's sister. Modred is a well-respected knight, but as we'll soon discover, he's also a traitor. During his journey to engage the Romans, Arthur has a dream in which a giant bear battles a dragon. During the fight, Laoman says that flames flew from the eyes as firebrands. Floch of Hera, Hachenus, Wolch, Fjörbrandus. This is the first recorded use of the term firebrand. Here it's used to mean a spark or flame. Today the word has a more figurative sense, usually referring to someone with a great deal of energy, often an agitator. But Laoman is the first known writer to use the term and he uses it here to describe the fight between the bear and the dragon in Arthur's dream. Arthur is confused by the dream, and he's unsure how it should be interpreted. 
Arthur then musters his forces for the confrontation with the Roman army. The two armies meet in France, and several battles are fought there. Over time, Arthur gets the better of the emperor, and the city of Rome itself falls to Arthur's forces. But the emperor continues to hold out and wage war. During one great battle, Arthur's knights are attacked by one of the emperor's allies from the Near East. In Laoman's words, an admiral of Babylon, he was prince. On admiral of Babylon, he was Aldra. Now this is an interesting passage for a couple of reasons. First, Laoman renders the name of Babylon as Babylon, spelled B-A-B-I-L-O-I-N-E. That spelling, O-I, was a brand new spelling in English. And that's because it represented a new sound or phoneme in English. It represented the oi sound, as in toy or boy or voice. This vowel sound is a diphthong, and it didn't exist in Old English. It actually came in from French, and we now see evidence that that new oi sound was being used in spoken English. The other reason why this passage is interesting is because it contains the first recorded use of the word admiral in an English document. And if it seems a little strange that Laoman describes a Babylonian ruler as an admiral, it shouldn't, because admiral is actually an Arabic word. As we saw a few episodes back, this was a period in which Arabic influences were moving into northwestern Europe, thanks to trade, pilgrimage, and the Crusades. And that included quite a few Arabic words. And the word admiral is another one of those words. In fact, the word admiral is actually derived from the Arabic title of emir, which is still used today. Emir, or amir, meant leader or commander in Arabic. As we know from the recent episodes about Arabic influences, the word al was the Arabic word for the. So amir al meant commander of thee. So that phrase usually came before some other noun. Amir al-Muninin meant the commander of the faithful. Amir al-Umara meant the commander of the commanders, or ruler of rulers. Now Europeans picked up that phrase, Amir al, but they didn't really understand that the al part at the end meant the word thee. They just thought Amir al was the full name of the title. So rather than just Amir, French and English took the title as Amir all. And it's not surprising that it first appears in Laoman's Brute in reference to a Babylonian prince, because it was still considered an Arabic title at the time. So how did Amir all become Admiral with a D? Well, it appears to be the result of some confusion among scribes who generally wrote in medieval Latin. Latin had this title as Amiralis, but Latin also had the word admirabilis, which later produced the word admirable. So modern scholars think that scribes sometimes confused the two words. After all, admirals were often admirable. So it became increasingly common for scribes to write this title with a D at the end of the first syllable. And that's how it appears in Laoman's text. So if that's how Amir al became admiral, how did the title come to be associated with naval commanders? As we can see, it didn't originally have that meaning. It meant any kind of commander or leader. 
Well, the answer is related to the fact that Arab navies were very prominent in the Mediterranean during this period. In the 1100s, Arab leaders in Spain and Sicily created a specific naval rank called the Commander or Amir of the Sea, the Amir al-Bar. During the Crusades, Crusaders and pilgrims often encountered these Arabic naval officers in the Mediterranean. And when Christian forces took control of Sicily, they retained the position and the title. And over time, Europeans started to associate that title of admiral with naval commanders. In the late 1200s, King John's grandson, Edward I, appointed a man named William de Leyburn to a newly created position in the English Navy called Admiral of the English Seas, which was obviously based on that title used in the Mediterranean. And from there, the word admiral acquired a very specific meaning as a naval commander in English. But those developments took place about a century after Layman's text. So Layman uses the title of admiral in its original sense, as an Arabic commander or military leader. In the story, the Babylonian admiral is killed in battle by one of Arthur's knights. But the admiral's son witnesses his father's death, and he grabs a spear and stabs the knight, quote, on the left side throughout his heart. The knight falls to the ground and dies. Now this passage shows another development in the language, and that development has to do with the statement that the knight was stabbed on the left side of the heart. This is the first use of the word left in an English document to mean the opposite of the right side. The Anglo-Saxons actually used the word winestra to refer to the left side. So where did the word left come from? Well, it apparently came from Old English, but it isn't actually attested in any of the surviving Old English documents. Modern scholars think the word probably existed in Old English because it has cognates throughout the Germanic languages. So it was almost certainly a Proto-Germanic word. Now, it's possible that it fell out of use in Old English, but there is an Old Latin text that has some English glosses or translations in the margins, and one of those texts has the Latin word inanis, which meant empty or weak. And in the margin, an English scribe translated that word as left. And in Old English, paralysis was called luftadel. That's been interpreted by some as the lifting disease, meaning a disease that makes a person unable to lift his or her limbs. But other scholars have interpreted the word luftadel to mean the left disease. Again, this alternate interpretation assumes that the word left originally meant weak, just like it did in that Latin translation. So luftadel meant the weakening disease, the disease that made a person so weak that they can't move. So all of this suggests that the word left did exist in Old English, and it probably meant weak. And since most people were right-handed, their right arm was their stronger arm. And that meant that their left arm was their weaker arm. And since left meant weak, that weaker arm became known as the left arm. So left came to mean the opposite of right. Anyway, that's the best theory as to how the word left evolved within English. All we can say for certain is that Layman gave us the first use of the word left to mean the opposite of right. 
and he did so in the passage where one of Arthur's knights is stabbed in the left side of the heart. Now, despite the death of Arthur's knight, the emperor's forces are finally defeated, and the emperor himself is killed in battle. This is the Arthurian explanation for the fall of the Roman Empire in Western Europe. Rome fell because Arthur defeated it. A short time after Arthur's victory, while he's still on the continent, a visitor arrives from Modred's court back in Britain. As you may recall, Modred is Arthur's nephew, his sister's son, and Arthur had left Modred in charge of Britain during the campaign against Rome. Arthur and the visiting knight speak for much of the evening, and Arthur eventually retires to bed. While sleeping, Arthur has a disturbing dream. His nephew Modred attacks him with an axe, so Arthur pulls his sword and cuts off Modred's head, and he also kills his wife, Guinevere, and cuts her to pieces. The next morning, the visiting knight asked Arthur how he slept, and in reply, Arthur recalls the dream. Arthur tries to interpret the meaning of the dream, and he says that he thinks that Modred has committed treachery, and he suspects that he's taken Guinevere as his lover. The visiting knight reluctantly confirms Arthur's suspicions. He says, Thus haveth Modred Eden, thus hath Modred done. Thine aquaina he haveth even, thy queen he hath taken. Anti Wulichiland is set on his erahand, and thy fair land set in his own hand. He is king, and Heo is queen. He is king, and she is queen. In anger, Arthur vows to immediately return to Britain and kill Modred and Guinevere for their treachery, as well as all people in Britain that have sided with them. But before Arthur and his forces can make their way to Britain, word arrives that they're on their way. Guinevere flees to Caleon and lives in secrecy as a nun. Laomon says that no one thereafter knew where she was or if she was living or dead. This also explains Laomon's earlier statement that Caleon was bewitched and had never regained the glory that it had during the time when Arthur's coronation was held there. Meanwhile, Modred realizes that he will face Arthur's wrath so he sends his messengers to Saxony to ask for help from the Saxons. Modred offers them part of his realm if they will help him defeat Arthur. As the Saxons arrive, Modred retreats to Winchester, where he's besieged by Arthur. He then escapes to Cornwall. Arthur maintains his pursuit of Modred and finally traps him in Cornwall. The two leaders and their respective forces meet for a final battle. A bloody showdown takes place where almost all of the warriors on both sides are killed. Arthur himself is slashed and bloody, but he's able to kill Modred with his sword. Arthur is in a very bad state after the fight. Laomon writes, Arthur was wounded wondrously much. Arthur was forwounded wounder on a suitha. Arthur is lying on the ground, and he is attended to by a knight named Constantine, who is both Arthur's kinsman and the son of the Earl of Cornwall. Arthur gives his kingdom to Constantine, and he asks him to defend the kingdom and maintain his laws. He then says that he will fare to Avalon, where the elfin queen named Arganta will heal his wounds. He then says the following, Anseatha each cumin wula to mina kina richa, and wuni and mid bruten mid mutula wuna. 
and afterward I will come again to my kingdom and dwell with the Britons with much joy. This establishes the legend that Arthur is the once and future king of Britain. As Arthur speaks, a small boat arrives from the sea with two women inside. They take Arthur and place him in the boat, and the boat slowly sails away. Laomen concludes his section on Arthur by saying that the Britons believe that Arthur is still alive, and he dwells in Avalon with the elves. They expect him to return one day. Laomen's final line regarding Arthur is very interesting. He says that Merlin foretold that Arthur would one day return. His quithis were sotha, his saying were sooth, tha an Arthur should yet to cum Anglin to fulsta that an Arthur should yet come to help the English. Notice that Laomen concludes his Arthurian story by saying that the future Arthur will come to the aid of the Angland, the English. Throughout the poem, he's referred to Arthur's people as the Britons, but here at the end, he changes the word to the English. I should note that the later scribe changed Laomen's word to the Brutus, the British, but that was not Laomen's word. Laomen concluded by identifying Arthur with the English. So he in effect makes Arthur an English king, not a strictly British king. This is all the more interesting when we consider that the remaining sections of the manuscript describe how the Saxons invited by Modred proceed to conquer the Britons. This is the legendary version of how the Anglo-Saxons came to capture so much of the island. So the Saxons were the mortal enemies of Arthur's Britons. But by the time that Laomen composed his poem, around the year 1200, the people of England were no longer seen as Germanic Saxons. Now they were the English. And Arthur was just as much their king as the king of the Britons who had preceded them. This distinction makes sense when we consider that the Celtic Britons had mixed with the Saxons and the Vikings and the Norman French to produce the nation of England. Notions of Saxon purity were long gone by this point. In Laomen's mind, there was very little difference between the ancient Britons and the modern English. And that helps to explain how Arthur was embraced as an English king. In fact, let me make this point with some additional evidence. Contemporary evidence from this period suggests that the terms England and Britain were being used interchangeably by many writers. In prior episodes, I've mentioned the well-known writer of the period, known as Gerald of Wales. Around the year 1188, so about a decade before this manuscript was completed, Gerald wrote a text in Latin called Topography of Ireland, which was about the people and landscape of Ireland. The text included a map of the British Isles. Ireland is identified with its Latin name, Hibernia. Scotland is identified with its Latin name, Scotia or Scotia. Wales was labeled with its Latin name, Wallia. But England is not identified as Anglia, as we would expect. It is labeled as Britannia. That suggests that Britannia, or Britain, was considered a synonym of England at the time. Henry of Huntingdon was another English writer who lived during the 1100s. Again, he wrote in Latin, as was customary at the time. But in one of his texts, called Historia Anglorum, or History of the English, he states that the island of Britain was once called Albion, 
Then it came to be known as Britain. And he says that during his lifetime, it is known as England. So he calls the entire island England. So all of this suggests that the old distinctions between Britons and Saxons had been eroded over time, and the political and social and economic power of England had caused some people during this time to equate Britain with England. The English were seen as the natural heirs and successors of the people who had once inhabited the island. It was their island as much as the Welsh or the Cornish or the Scots. And when Arthur one day returns from Avalon, he will be a king of the English as much as anyone else. And the Englishmen of this period had Laoman's words to prove it. And those words were written in English. And that's how a British legend became an English king. Next time, we'll return to events during the reign of King John. And we'll continue to look at developments in the language during the early 1200s. Until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast. 